Sometimes I need to record one of my books. People want a recording, an audio edition. And in my room, there's a very small wardrobe. So with the door open, I balanced a mattress between the door and the wall, which put me in a soundproof room. Another mattress over the top, the top of the door, crawled inside and my sister came and closed the gap. And then I had to do some recording in this tiny, tiny, tiny space. And I think most people probably couldn't have stood being cramped up like that, but I'm used to it because of all the hours I spent watching chimps, sometimes in very strange positions. So those are some of the fun things that I get to do. We are all connected. All our voices matter. And it will take all of our pooled talents and strengths to create a healthier planet. Our mother, our one and only home. I aspire to change the world too, because of the hope she gave me. The earth is beautiful. She devoted her life together to Together we can save the world. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I get to speak with someone who's a leader in aligning business practices with practices that are good for the environment and for society, Paul Perlman. Among his many endeavors, Paul is the former CEO of Unilever, and while he was CEO, he moved that company in alignment with his vision. He's the co-founder and chair of Imagine, an organization that strives to build net positive companies. Most recently, he's co-authored the book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. I am really excited to speak with such a fantastic proponent of corporate sustainability initiatives that help to make our world a better place. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Paul Pullman. You know, Paul, I'm really, really excited to talk to you in this Hopecast because you really have become one of my great heroes. And that book that you just wrote, Net Positive, it's amazing. One thing I love about it is the stories that you fill in with because that's very powerful. You're a great storyteller yourself, though. So you were just trying to emulate what you show us <laughs> in many respects. So don't be too modest on that. Well, I want to know how you began. What was your childhood like? Where were you? And what got you into business? Well, I've been very fortunate, uh, Jane. I grew up in, uh, I was born in 1956. You know, my father was 15 when the war started and 20 when the war was finished. So he was deprived of of high school. He was deprived of his education. They went into hiding, had to work on German farms when their labor had been depleted because of the war. And uh, all what they cared about really was to be sure that their six children, myself being the second one, had a better life than they did. But they met in Boy Scouts, my parents, so that was a very important part for all of us to be in Boy Scouts. My father ran it for a long time still afterwards. And, um, you know, he literally... he. Uh, had two jobs to give us a better life. He unfortunately passed home when he was 68. 
I got to know him better after he had passed on, actually, the more I reflected on it and the more uh, wiser I was trying to become. My mother was a teacher, so for her, education was the most important thing. And uh, so that's how I grew up. I wanted to be a priest first and went to a seminar to uh, study that. Then, you know, that was in those days already a dying profession. And uh, so I ended up going back to my hometown and wanted to become a doctor. In Holland, there's a lottery system because the government pays for education, which has been my saving. And my father made clear that I had to earn my own living. So I ended up going to business school because that was a, a second option. And uh, when I was uh, doing, I did my bachelor's, but I wasn't very motivated. His company had been bought by an American company called Goodrich. So he said, why don't you go to the U.S., learn English, understand what business does. So I ended up in the U.S., but uh, not going to the tire factory. I just knocked on the door of every university. And for some reason, one let me in, which really is the story of one person who can change your life. In this case, the dean of the economics department. First, I went to home economics. It shows you how much I knew and how much I understood from the system. But in those days in the U.S., I had a tourist visa. I had no money. So he said, if you teach Samuels in 101, get straight A's in your first semester, then we will offer you a scholarship. So I started that, got my scholarship, had another job like a maintenance man. And as I did my studies, I got into finance. A professor in finance wanted me to work for him. So I did that. So that's how I got my MA and my MBA. And then it was a very small step to P&G because in the evening classes I had to take, in the the building I worked as a maintenance man, they were, they were full of P&G people. And so I got attracted to them. They offered me a job. And that's how I started my international career. But a, a short way of saying, growing up in the 60s with Earth Day, Rachel Carlson's book, Rio, Biafra, Vietnam War. Uh, we were protesting in the Netherlands because there were nuclear weapons and American bases when I grew up, one very close to my hometown. So we were a little bit of the modern day hippies, if you want to, but a very socially high level of consciousness. And, and that still is in my vein. So I always saw business as a force for good and that we should be there to address the world problems, not creating them. But, you know, Many of these issues were probably not in our radar screen when we were only two or three billion people, but that has changed in the last few years. And now we have more to do and we need to do it together because it's simply too big for any of us to take on their own shoulders. We do have to do it together. And we actually have very dark forces to fight against. Isn't that true? Turn it around. See that you make a difference. See in your little sphere, you are making an impact. And then luckily, I'm sure you agree with me, Paul, but tell me if you don't, when you do something that makes the world a little bit better, makes you feel good. If you feel good, you want to feel better. So you do more. Absolutely. I always say, uh, Jane, the moment that you become a true leader is when you understand that putting yourself to the service of others, you're also better off yourself as well. Generosity always wins long term. It's just that we don't have so much time anymore. And that's why your book, Hope, is so great, because we do need to now build on that momentum. And in the end, indeed, everything happens on the ground, and it is about people, and it is about the local communities, and that we need to keep in mind. If there's one challenge in the global issues is that we become very quickly distant from fellow human beings, from nature, and and we need to be sure that we keep that connection. That's what I try to do in my life in Unilever. Because that's where the solutions are. As we've seen with COVID, 
Unfortunately, it didn't come from the governments. They were, even still today, withholding it from two-thirds of the world's population. But it comes from the local people who go on the ground, in the communities, who go through extraordinary efforts. That's where you find the heroes, but, but you know it better than I do. Paul, how do we get other big companies to have the same altruistic attitude and love of service that you have? I hope this book will help. That's the idea was this book. We actually are trying to create that movement, you know, to reframe what good looks like. It's not really about the book sales. It's about the behavioral change. Uh, if we don't understand with a higher level of consciousness that we actually are nature. You know, Hubert Reeves said it very well when he said that man is the most insane species. He destroys a visible nature, but worships an invisible God not realizing that the invisible God he worships is the physical nature he destroys in the first place. And this is what we are doing. So I'm actually now more hopeful because we need the private sector. It's no sense denying or isolating or excluding. They are 65, 70% of economies in countries that you know better, like Tanzania and, and the whole region. There are probably 90, 95% of these economies with small and medium-sized enterprises. So... They're 80% of the financial flow, 90% of the job creation. We cannot achieve the sustainable development goals if business isn't part of it. And interestingly, we're now at the point, as we've seen with COVID, that the cost of our failings are becoming higher than what it would cost us to address these issues in the first place. And this makes it very interesting for smart business. I think that is also why you see the financial market becoming more interested. They're historically not being driven by reasons of morality. But increasingly, as we've seen in Glasgow with alliances, they're starting to say we need to decarbonize our portfolios because it is not anymore a question of risk anymore. It's a question of opportunity. Companies like uh, Orsted in energy or companies like Tesla in mobility and electric vehicles, they are getting increasingly more and more rewarded by the financial community because they're positioning themselves well towards the future. And what we've seen during COVID is that companies that accelerated this energy transition to clean energy or that take better care of their people and their value chains, uh, the human rights standards, the social safety nets, the uh, racial inclusion, and companies that actively try to get more uh, sustainable, they're actually also getting a higher uh, valuation from the financial market. And at the end of the day, that's probably the biggest driver, if we like it or not, that incentive that uh, makes your company more resilient so that you can have a longer, more successful future. And it's not difficult to understand. Your employees are more motivated. You become a better employer brand. You have better relationships with the communities that you work in, with your suppliers. So when there are big shocks like we've just had, that is much more resilience and much more joint partnerships to help these things. And all of that gets translated into better results. So I always say that businesses that move into that direction are, are positioning them well for the future. The ones that don't are heading towards the graveyard of dinosaurs. And, and I think we're starting to see more of that already happening. It's really in business's interest to make societies function. Uh, otherwise, it, they wouldn't be able to function either. There, there are no jobs on the dead planet, as you know. <laughs> no. You know. I've always said, and I've never really known if I was right to think this way, but that 
big corporations, big powerful corporations, in so many cases are propping up governments, like supporting campaigns. So do you think that as businesses move in the direction that you've just outlined, and in a way it is seeing writing on the wall, some of the CEOs I've talked to, you know, have seen, we cannot go on with business as usual. It's just not possible, not on a finite planet. So do you think that as more companies move in this, obviously the only sensible direction, is that going to be able to influence some of these governments that are swinging so frighteningly to the far right? Yeah, it's a good question. And sometimes you, you do a step forward and two steps backwards. And it feels like that sometimes. And that is frustrating if you see what happened in the U.S. with the previous uh, presidency or with Bolsonaro now with the rainforest in Brazil or, you know, um, and some others. Uh, the world is full of populists or nationalists or hate, I say, xenophobics. And actually, it's not the fault of these people. We really have to go back to why they got elected in the first place. And it is because we failed to address these issues before. We failed to make this a more inclusive growth. We failed to make it a more sustainable growth. So these are little signals of failure more than anything else. And um, I think CEOs, which are now being seen as more trusted than governments in many places, understand that they not only have a bigger role to play, but that they also have to step up and make their voices heard. 95% of CEOs don't want to go back to where we came from. Most CEOs understand that we can't have infinite growth on the finite planet. And anything, by definition, that we can't do forever is unsustainable. They also understand that they have to defend the basic human values. Anytime politicians try to attack uh, dignity and respect, uh, democracy, equity, they have to step up. And you saw that happening in January 6 in the US or when uh, human rights are being violated. Uh, CEOs need to have an opinion. And frankly, society expects them to have that opinion. Employees expect them to have that opinion. One of the big changes that we have seen is the employees actually be, being willing to walk out. Every week now, there are companies, you know, be it from Netflix to Microsoft to Amazon, good companies in essence, but where their employees say, if you're not more aggressive on climate change, I don't want to work here anymore. If you give mattresses to the border control in Mexico where children are separated from the parents, I don't want to be part of it. If you give face recognition to the government and they start to control us in a way that undermines democracy, I don't want to work here. So the companies have activists, like you've been your whole life to some extent an activist from the outside in. We're now finding them actually inside. And that's a big galvanizer for change. The big change we've made in the last few years is that people are now convinced of the direction. The why is not anymore an issue. A few people, but the why is well understood. Why we need to create a more inclusive uh, society? Why do we need to attack the issues of climate change or food security, etc.? It's just that they struggle with the how. And because a lot of these things we can't do anymore within the current system that we have created. So optimizing a system that doesn't quite work for us is like nearly the definition of insanity. So what we say in the book Net Positive as well is companies have to play a bigger role to drive these broader system changes. How can you drive the accounting system uh, to not only reward financial returns, but also social and environmental returns? How can you change your food system to protect biodiversity? How do you change your energy systems to get out of the drug of 
a fossil fuel or methane or, or gas and coal. So these are the type of big changes that are happening now, and they struggle with it. What the book is trying to do is change what good looks like. Many companies are in what we call the CSR space, corporate social responsibility. And that's about being less bad. But in a world that already has overshot its planetary boundaries, less bad is not good enough anymore. So you you understand. So you have to start thinking restorative, regenerative, reparative. And that is really the essence of net positive. But it starts with that higher level of consciousness. And it starts with taking responsibility. You cannot hide behind um, outsourcing your value chain and then outsourcing your responsibility. It doesn't work anymore. You have to take responsibility of your total impact in the world, all consequences intended or not. That's where companies like Facebook, which have a big role to play, you know, a great platform brings education, healthcare, whatever, to people. But if you don't take responsibility for uh, child addiction to the to the media, uh, undermining of democracy or hate speech, then people don't accept this anymore. We have to get into this mindset of net positive. You know, I'm thinking of states that are becoming very autocratic, dictatorial. So one of the things that people have always picked up on is sanctions. We're going to sanction you. And if you look at sanctions from the other side, from the side of the country being sanctioned, the dictators who are doing all these bad things, it's not hurting them. But the people who really suffer are the people who can't get stuff anymore because it's been sanctioned. So... Do sanctions work? Is it a way to go? Or do we have to find another way to tackle these, well, I call them rogue regimes, because they are? Yeah, they are. And unfortunately, uh, we have too many of them still. And the reason that sanctions don't work as well as they were intended to be is because the whole world is not aligned anymore. So if you close the door in one direction, the, uh, the door opens in another direction and the effect of the sanctions disappear. You look at the tragedies unfolding right now in Myanmar, and we've tried to put coalitions together from businesses and say what happens to the Rohingyas is unacceptable. These are major, major violations of human rights, that if we stay silent or don't do anything, that becomes the norm. And if that becomes the norm, we actually erode humanity. We become complicit to the crime itself. It's the same as uh, in any other country when we don't speak up to things that we know are wrong. So... We do need to keep pressure up in some way or another to show what the standards are that the world can accept and what the standards are that the world can't accept. But what is more of an incentive to change is not that fear or that threat, because you and I know when when you try to get people to move out of fear, your amygdala goes into overdrive and you get the fight, the flight, the freeze. It becomes unconstructive behavior. What is beautiful about your book that I have here, the book of hope, is that you approach it positively. So how do you change companies? How do you change systems? Is by showing what that potential is, by showing that that actually where we are going to is 10 times better than where we came from. And there will be companies or people that will suffer in that transition. And what we need to learn to do is be very respectful, ensure that we help these people the problem with globalization was not globalization itself, is that we didn't take care of the ones that were suffering from globalization. If we, as we must, phase out factory farming of animals 
and what's called conventional agriculture, which you know a lot more about than me after being in Unilever. That means all these people who are working in the factory farms in horrible conditions, we have to find jobs for them, don't we? Yeah, what you actually see is now, uh, Jane, that this transition to this greener, more inclusive economy, that decarbonized economy, which we must, that it actually has the signs of more job creation, better job, more resilient jobs. Uh, and, and by the way, in a world that we can live in. But that transition, if you close a coal mine, you have to take care of the coal miners. And that's the same for the slaughterhouses. The good thing about Glasgow, the COP26, where we did the climate change negotiations, and you were there not only in spirit, you were there with a strong advocacy from a distance and your voice was heard. But for the first time, people understood that if we wanted to stop the um, or solve the climate change crisis, it cannot only be an energy transition. We also have to think differently of our food system. We have to protect our natural habitat. You know, our food system is nearly 30% of emissions, methane and livestock that you referred to being one of the major ones. And yet it's also 20, 30% of the solution. The tree is probably the best invention in the world. And the good thing about Glasgow is that nature-based solutions have come on the radar screen. Uh, we obviously have the food summit. We have the COP15 in Kunming. But people are starting to see this. And as part of this, we need to reverse nature loss. We need to get rid out of methane that has actually made the food industry increasingly one of the bigger carbon emitters. And that means alternative diets changing to alternative proteins and all these things. And you see that the market starts to understand that. You look at the market valuation of companies like um, Beyond Meat or Oatly, they have created more value than the conventional food companies who have been sleeping at the wheel. So in that sense, the economic process, to some extent, is starting to work in incentivizing the right behaviors. But we must. We don't have much time there anymore. You know, the big difference, and I've said this to you before, the big difference between us and our closest relatives, chimps, our intellect, you know, I mean, okay, animals are way more intelligent than we used to think, but it doesn't compare with sending a rocket to Mars. You know, I mean, that that's the order of difference. So we have not used our intellect wisely. We've lost the wisdom of making a decision based on how will this help the health of the planet, the future generation, all the things you're talking about in your book, which seems to have been a disconnect between the clever intellect and love and compassion, the human heart. We have to now use our intellect together with our heart to come up with those kind of solutions you're talking about. We need to move to a plant-based diet. We need to move away from this conventional agriculture. We need to ban nuclear weapons. We need to use all the money that's spent on defense and aggression to help alleviate poverty so that everybody can make wise decisions in how they live and not be forced to destroy the environment or buy horrible junk food in order to survive. We know how to do that. It's the will to do it. And if you with your book, can get together with other CEOs of major companies and sort of put out this positive message that if you do this, if you follow this lead, your company will prosper. Yeah. Yeah, I could not have said it better, Jane, and I totally agree with that. The It is willpower. This is not a crisis of climate change or food security or inequality. It's a crisis of apathy, greed, selfishness. 
We call it in the book courageous companies, but that is made up of courageous leaders. Courage comes from the French word cur, and cur is the heart. We really need to bring humanity back to business. We need to have the heart and the brain. And, and what we've seen during COVID, to your point, is that leaders and companies that did better were leaders that were operating with a much higher level of empathy or compassion, humanity, humility, purpose-driven, partnership, thinking multi-generational. All these things are the new forms of leaders, from competitive leadership to cooperative leadership. I always tell these CEOs, you know, we have now so many issues that decide the future of humanity. We shouldn't compete on that anymore. And it's interesting because we are humans. Humanity comes from the from the Latin word humus, which is earth. We are destroying ourselves by our sheer act of destroying others. I think it's coming through with more and more people. You won't get them all. So what we need to do is get to these tipping points and then give governments more courage because at the end of the day, we need all of us, including the right regulations and frameworks to not get dragged down by undoubtedly some of the bad elements or the free riders. So this is really a process of change that we need to accelerate now. And I'm hopeful for the many reasons that you describe in your book and some others that I think we're on that right track, but we just need to accelerate it now. When you talk about values, Paul, this was something that it, it suddenly hit me the other day. We talk about, oh, you've got to give your children a good education and the right values, and then, you know, everything will be fine. But jump to the other side, jump to the um, extremists, for example. They're teaching children what the children believe is ethical behavior, that it's ethical to go and bomb innocent people. Does that not come back to that certain people have been underserved and therefore they're angry and they're desperate, so they clutch at anything? And that's why we get all these demonstrations and, and aggression. Yeah, I think you cannot, um, I've, I've always said, and you've actually lived it, but in any system where too many people feel they're excluded or not participating will ultimately rebel against itself. And and you can see that. And, and for business, it's not good either. You know, Henry Ford understood that you need to pay your work as well so they all could afford a T-Ford. But it's the same now. We all need to be sure that we uh, create something that is more inclusive and all the businesses would be better off themselves as well. You, you see now that the biggest problem in this part of the world is attracting talent. People don't want to work for companies anymore that really don't create this more inclusive, sustainable world. And it hurts the success of these companies long term if they don't address that. You see it in these emerging markets where you have a population growth, what the effects are if these people don't have any prospects in life. Then the only option they have is, is terrorism. You know, I, I was unfortunately in Mumbai in the hotel with the terrorist attack. And Oh, wow, were you? Yeah, many, many people around us lost their lives. And for one miracle reason, I still don't understand, we came out. But... But the, the root cause of that is is poverty again once more. And it ought to make us more determined to fight these things. And 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 I like your reference to the golden rule. You know, my my wife wrote a book called The Immaculate Cells, and her version of the golden rule, which you find in every religion actually, is do unto others and the planet as you would have done unto yourself. So we see inserted the planet in there, which I know you like. But if we would just, in case of doubt, 
lift that golden rule, the world would already be a significantly better place. I've said that too. All we need with the golden rule is to include nature and animals. By the way, did you see that amazing ruling by the Ecuadorian High Court about the rights of nature? That was a landmark ruling, honestly. It means that all throughout Ecuador, governments will not be allowed to put mining concessions in areas of high biodiversity value. And this is amazing. That is a breakthrough. No, and it's a sad thing that we increasingly need to go to the courts to hold up a higher level of uh, consciousness. You know, you have now governments that are being chased in the courts because they're not aggressive enough on climate change or companies for that matter. And if we don't give the rights to all living species, including not only the the human beings, then we will not get there. Satish Kumar said it well when when he said when they teach economy, they should also teach ecology. You cannot teach the running of the house if you don't teach the managing of the house. And this gets very much to the managing of the house. When you were working for P&G, was that a time when there was a lot of demonstration against animal testing? Yeah, I when I was running in the UK, uh, P&G, at that time I was responsible for the UK and Ireland early in my career. I had people of PETA going after me and said, you do animal testing in your research laboratories. I said, I don't think so. And and why don't you come have a look? No, I don't want to look because you you removed them anyway before we come. So there was a little bit that situation of, you know, how can we together solve it? And in Unilever, very practically, we had developed all these testing methods that were helping us to be predictive to get safe products, but didn't require animals. And we were talking actively with countries like China and Russia to change their laws so that uh, that you didn't have to test animals to be able to sell products. So I think in the book Net Positive, we talk about the responsibility of companies now to use their size, scale, and force to drive these structural changes. And we probably saved uh, hundreds of millions of animals by changing the laws. And, uh, you know, it doesn't serve anything to say to companies, don't go to Russia or China because they have animal testing, or don't go into this or that country because they're human rights violations, because at the end of the day, you can't go to any country in the world under that principle. So how do you become that force for change that is bigger than yourself is how I think we need to start thinking more to get to what you and I have been talking about, this more inclusive, equitable world. I really want to thank you because I know how busy you are. Thank you for all what you're doing, Jane. And we need to find some time to truly catch up. So let that be the promise for the new year. Big companies continue exploiting the natural resources that are finite. If governments continue to believe that annual growth of GDP is more important than protecting the environment for the future, then what will it be like in 2050? We need a new relationship with the natural world and animals. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found.
I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Gaukusha and Alana Hellens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman. And Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. <laughs>